the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a lot of phraseology that is bantied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not... Um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore had been locations where um, faith, particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are uh, persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And what we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we, uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over instead of a theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we thought was nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No. But until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore, you know, uh, I don't... I don't agree with Christians. I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy or, or, or theocracy or, or, or theology or things of that nature. And so it probably was my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is... Um 
an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially, but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case, Islam. But what about here in America? Um, We're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequency on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and, and uh, covert, others more overt and, and even systematic. Why, why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, who, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrarian to this notion of, of again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia? Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control in society, for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians just used it, but they still had this control. What, what's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society, where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion, and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being bigots themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, Doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided that it's only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their, in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's it's very hard for for to point out how intolerant they are because in their mind they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever adjective you want to use. Uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. Are there those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there? And by that, I mean this, Doctor. Racism, I mean, clearly, an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia, based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual a sense of uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now is becoming a minority group, and uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. 
We're going to take a time out on that point and come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief time out back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Seemingly, um, what's the best way to phrase this? Um, Inconsistently applied. And and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their, 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or or, or, or in, in not, not consistently applied? Well, I think that those with Christianophobia, they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. That's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable. Uh, and, of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians would be comfortable with, but others... Uh, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with, and then, then we talk about tolerance. There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or, or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, uh, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melting pot, Hot experiment of America, that there's been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface, um, is, is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? You know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it, and now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past, people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can't pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so the way I would see it is it's a matter of power that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for, for a variety of different reasons, and now so they are going to use that power. 
What about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of uh, true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to uh, opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone studying race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, 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 what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belonging to this group, would you be more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have the precise numbers in my head. So, there, now you have a situation where, while that, that, that evangelical feminist may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end... It begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. And yet they pull on the moniker of we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore there, there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Oh, even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having to say race, uh, there, there are sins Christians have done historically uh, concerning racism, uh, and we can look at other problems. So, so Christians are not are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive, and so. While, yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things where we victimize some people, uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems. But that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented 
I told you about when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a it's sort of a both and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians, but we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people with Christianophobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that, you know, part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous, I mean, on and on, the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. And yet I have to wonder, um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, they're, they're there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that to a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this. And we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this. But in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point. In time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand, we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to, sort, to, uh, to work together uh, so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, art, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice, and we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, you know, if we, if we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, we've just kind of um, skimmed the surface of this very deep topic. You can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, GeorgeYancey.com. Dot com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile environment, understanding and responding to anti-Christian bias. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Somewhat innocuous sounding, or obnoxious as the case may be, sounding bit of music might seem to have come from some major Hollywood spectacle, or maybe even serve as a great theme song for this show some days. But in fact, it is the theme from one of the best-selling video games of all time, Call of Duty. And 
I've always marveled at those that will talk about what a wonderful teaching tool that computers can be or television and that children can watch a program like uh, Nat Geo and come back with all kinds of great facts and having expanded their horizons and understanding of life and the world and how engaging the computer can be as an educational tool and yet out of the very same mouths will come well there's no influence whatsoever of violent video games on children how can you dare even suggest such a thing well which is it going to be folks can media, in particular television and interactive uh, uh, games and so forth, can they teach children or are they not teachers at all? Joining me now with some insights is Dr. Jane Anderson. She served for many years as a pediatrician at Mount Zion Center for uh, UCSF. And uh, Dr. Anderson, always a delight and an education to have you join us on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> what, what about this debate? I, I just I never have quite understood, Dr. Anderson, how we can out of one side of our mouth suggest that television and computers are a wonderful teaching tool and the other one say that they at the same time have no influence on children who will spend sometimes hundreds of hours over the course of a month engrossed in violent video games that have no other purpose than racking up points killing people. Exactly. It's sort of why why do companies spend two point five, you know, million dollars for a thirty second commercial on the Super Bowl if they don't think it's going to influence our behavior. Precisely. So there the interesting thing for me is that there is so much new information on brain research. And researchers are now using brain scanning tools such as MRIs to evaluate children and teenagers uh, before and after and sometimes during um, the time that they're playing video games to see what happens. So we now have real brain data that shows that areas of our brain that are linked to desensitization to violence are activated during violent video games. We have more longitudinal studies that show us that children who play more video games are more likely to engage in violent behavior. And it doesn't mean that every child who plays video games is going to end up more aggressive, but it certainly plays into the tendencies, and there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, Violence uh, during video games is not just learned and demonstrated, it is repetitively practiced over and over again until you get it right. And then that violence is rewarded, so you get, um, you get to uh, go to higher levels or you get expanded tools of violence, so you get rewarded for your behavior. And, um, and so the violence becomes justified and it becomes, quote, fun. And then worse than that, it's what we call many of the games, the, like Call of Duty, Mortal Kombat, others, Doom. They are first-person player video games. In other words... When we think of Pac-Man, it was like take a you know take a joystick and make the you know little Pac-Man guy move. Um, you weren't actually Pac-Man, but the first-person player games, you are actually the player, and you see the world through the player's eyes. And that's why um, some of the school shooters had never held guns before. The kids in um, I believe it was Mississippi had in Pearl, Mississippi. That student had never held a gun before, but he'd practiced on video games, and so he was able to have direct hits to students who were running, but he got them with one shot and killed them. 
which is, you know, better than most, you know, police agencies or soldiers can do, but well, he'd been practicing. Well, and we've seen cases where military, including our own, um, are, are extremely interested in talking to uh, potential recruits who have very high marks in video gaming because these same individuals who, as you point out, often have no experience shooting an actual weapon whatsoever, and yet when the gun is put into their hands for the first time, demonstrate remarkable levels of marksmanship. Why? Because the ability to load, reload, aim, and so forth, they've practiced all of that sometimes thousands and times over. I mean, in often cases, uh, Dr. Anderson, I would imagine just in terms of overall experience, albeit not with a real weapon, but still their level of experience is equal to or exceeds even what the police get on the firing range. Oh, sure. I mean, there. Th- one of the studies is from 2004, so it's old now. But boys between 8 and 13 years of age were playing 13 hours a week of video games, and most of those are violent. So although not all video games are violent, 10 of the top 20 game sellers are violent. And it is a multi-billion dollar industry, $11.7 billion um, we're spending. So I always like to tease and say, don't tell me we don't have enough money to do X, Y, Z. Excellent point. You make reference to a number of these studies that are out there, the growing body of evidence that suggests that, of course, there's a connection to violence after they've seen and been programmed uh, by this kind of so-called entertainment. I'm curious to find out what the brainwave activity is showing, and most importantly, what needs to be the warning word here. Even after the heels of events like Sandy Hook, we're teaching our children that violence is entertainment, In real life, when we engage in wars that we do, we teach our children that that's the way adults settle disputes. And then when our kids grow up and turn the guns on us or act out violently against us, we wonder what happened to little Johnny that maybe because he wasn't breastfed as a child, he's acting this way. We've trained these kids to behave like this. Why are we as a society surprised rhetorical question. Better put, what can we who understand it and get it do to overcome all of this? We'll continue with more of our conversation with Dr. Jane Anderson as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So the um, five or six billion dollar a year video gaming industry says that their um, their entertainment has no influence on children and violent activity whatsoever. Of course, they would probably have um, upwards of five, six billion reasons why they would say that. Dr. Jane Anderson with us today with a bit contrarian insight on this topic. Dr. Anderson, you mentioned about this growing body of evidence, and I know there have literally been thousands of studies that have tied in uh, the, the impact of prolonged exposure to violent video games and the degree to which children who have a history of that as a form of entertainment, acting out in aggressive behavior, involvement in a violent manner with the authority, so on and so forth. What's the response to all of this? What should it be? I mean, we've been talking about this for years and years and years. 
outside of parents waking up to certain realities, is it time for the government to begin interceding here and saying, you know what, just like we won't allow kids to see certain classifications of movies, we're not going to allow them to engage in certain classifications of violent video games? Well, you know, um, as much as I'm a conservative politically and I don't like government intrusion generally, um, I think if we compare it to, uh, just like you said, you know, if we compare it to like accessing alcohol or pornography or going into an X-rated movie, I think we can set some limits on children and adolescents. They are still under adult sort of authority, and, and I hate to use the word control, but should be <laughs> under control. So I think, yes, you know, California tried it. We, they passed a law to uh, limit the um, access of teenagers to <clears throat> the most mature rating or the most violent um, video games, but it was defeated by the Supreme Court as a right to um, freedom of speech. Um, but I think if we can limit, you know, sale of uh, pornography, I think we can limit the sale of violent video games. But I really would encourage parents, um, until that time, <laughs> uh, they really have to be aware of um, the, the violence in the video games. And a lot of times it's not noticeable at the lower levels. If they're sitting next to their, you know, uh, teenager, they need to see, well, what's at the higher levels? And I want to really point out to all parents that boys are so susceptible. Uh, the way the boys' brains develop and their exposure to, to testosterone in utero at 12 weeks gestation, their brains develop differently, and they learn by competition and repetition. And that's exactly what video games are. So they're much more likely to become addicted and be influenced by the video games. So... For everybody, limit them, but especially for boys. And, you know, even parents of toddlers out there, the parents of toddlers who are listening and you're probably thinking, oh, well, you know, my kid's not affected by this. You know, you're handing them your iPad, your iPhone to keep them entertained, you know, while you're in the car or at the doctor's office, and you are teaching them that screen time is entertaining and you're not doing what we, we used to do as parents, talking to them while you're, you know, in the car and playing word games and I spy out the window and, you know, helping them be creative and problem solve. And when they're at home, get outdoors and do things outdoors. There's so much that of life that our children are missing out on because um, they're, they're indoors playing video games. So I'd really encourage parents to be aware, keep computers, video games, consoles, everything out of the kids' bedrooms. We have documented evidence that children who have computers and TVs and games and stuff in their bedrooms, they do worse in school, they have more problems with obesity, they sleep less, they have more behavioral problems. It's like there are things that parents can do. You know, and the other thing that dawns on me is we were sharing the notion of not engaging children in, in the healthy way, that the kids of my generation, we had no choice. None of this stuff existed in those days. I think we barely had the electric light. Uh, but we, we tend to then train kids to be very inward-looking as opposed to outward-looking. There, there's no sense of wonder and awe about the world around them. It's all limited to, you know, the 13-inch diagonally measured screen of the computer in front of them. And, you know, I, I think that, that that, you know, not only leads to a tremendous degree of, of, of a false, distorted, sort of just two-degree, uh, two-dimensional, rather, view of the world uh, in spite of the best efforts at 3D, 
But but then too, Doctor Anderson, I mean, isn't there a degree to which there is a chemical high that kids get off of this? Not just as they're advancing and they're making more points and they're able to you know engage in in, in more points for more kills and things of this sort. But aren't we kind of – there's got to be sort of a, a brain chemical reaction to engaging in this violence through a video game. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's, that's where addictions come in. And there are definitely, you know, teenagers who, and, and young – especially young, young, men, young men who are addicted to video games. And the addiction comes from the pleasurable response. And unfortunately – there's there's like a gate in our brain, and it's only going to let through certain sensations. So, for instance, if I'm sitting here, I'm not paying attention necessarily to where my feet are or what smells are in the room or whatever. The brain um, determines what is sensational, what is new, what is innovative and creative, and it lets those sensations through, which is why you have to have sort of different, more creative worse violence at the higher levels using worse vet weapons because that keeps that excitement and that adrenaline going and it allows your brain to take in that sensation and then it stimulates your dopaminergic system and um, that's what contributes to this need for more and more. No, just as much as we see the same thing played out in real life that oftentimes children who engage or, or adults who engage in violent behavior then do new, need to go higher and higher exactly. and higher in order to re- receive sort of the, the same kind of uh, chemicals uh, in, in enjoyment out that's of it. That's exactly right. So it ought to be easy for parents to connect the dots, folks. So let's start connecting the dots. Now, urging our government at the state level and federal level to start putting bans and restrictions and tighter controls on this, age restrictions, things of that sort is very important. But I guess at the end of the day, uh, Dr. Anderson, it really comes down to the parents, doesn't it? It really does. And the video game industry does have ratings on the video game. So pay attention, you know, look on the box. You know, does it say E for everyone or does it say M for mature audiences only? And it will say on there if it's sexual, if it's violent, if it's, you know, um, if there's foul language, it'll say on there. So look and read. Um, Teenagers tell you their parents might set rules for the TV viewing, but they don't set rules for video game playing. Well, set some rules and set some guidelines. Meet with the teenagers hey, what do you think you're doing when you're, you're playing video games? What, be, what activities are you not participating in? Oh, you know, you're not outdoors exercising and playing on a team. And boys, by the way, learn so much about the real world by playing on a sports team. So, you know, get your – and girls do too, but boys more so. Get your guys out there playing, um, you know, reading, being creative. You know, it used to be kids would go outdoors and create the rules to a game, and they'd be creative. You know, you be this, I'll be that. And now it's just, you know, I'll sit here and sit side by side with my friend, and we'll both, you know, play video games together. It's like, no, there are so many wonderful alternatives, and the evidence is overwhelming in so many arenas of life, whether it's the physical development of the child, the emotional development, the cognitive development, even developing empathy and compassion, our brains develop that by looking at someone else's facial expression. Well, you can't see those changes when you're in front of a screen. 
how far we've come from the day and age when I was a kid and they couldn't get us to come back indoors, and today we can't get them to go outdoors. Our thanks to Dr. Jane Anderson for being with us in this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.